these women, these incredibly powerful women would face that sort of thing. And not only that, but that they were doing such incredible things and making gains that affect all of us on a global level, yet there wouldn't be press there to capture those stories and report on them. One of the reasons people choose journalism as a career is they want to do something that affects positive change. What happens when your good journalism opens a whole new path for helping people and leads to a new career? I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Xanthi Scharf is a multimedia journalist and the co-founder and executive director of the Fuller Project for International Reporting. That's a nonprofit seeking to increase women's representation in news coverage and in news organizations across the globe. Welcome to the podcast, Xanthi. So happy to be here, Michael. Thank well, you. Th- thank you for coming into the studio, which I guess is, I understand you grew up in this area, so it's it's not too uh, too much of a stretch to make it in. To start off with, tell me about your journalist journey. What got you interested in journalism? So you mentioned I grew up here, so traveling back in time a little bit to growing up, I remember very clearly when I was a kid, I could always hear on a Saturday morning Chopin playing outside my parents' offices as they were writing. And they are both psychoanalysts, but they would dedicate any free time after seeing eight patients a day to writing up what they were doing. So it was always inculcated in us from an early age that no matter what people do in the world, somebody needs to write about it so that others can learn. So that was always there. And so as I started in my early career, I would always find a way to write while I was having experiences. So when I had my first job in Mexico, I wrote about tourism there and ecotourism. When I had my next job in Peru working for the World Bank, and I, I spent a year working on mining and the impact on indigenous communities, I did an investigation into the corruption between the regulators and the mines. And similarly, in different chapters, and when I was in South Sudan, same thing during the peace accords there, looking at how there were many flaws related to the idea that people would disarm. So that was always a theme for me. And I did different types of writing for longer journals and for academic outlets and then policy writing as well. I had a very important experience with journalism when I was working in Africa with communities out in in the rural area writing about families living on a dollar a day where I wrote about girls and their lack of access to education over the period of a year. And that gave me the opportunity to start work with those girls and and start an organization. So that's really kind of interesting because I guess storytelling is ingrained in you. Right. That whatever you do, you you have to, part of the the formula is to tell a story about it. Yeah, I think that's right. Certainly deeply ingrained in me is that the really the essence of why we're here can be talked about and be explained. And that's something about the way I grew up in a household of of analysts, that um, we all have inside us these really important experiences. And through talking about them, we can come to a place where we're able to be better people, better understand each other and and live in more harmony. So that that is kind of the religion with which I grew up, if you will. So that need to communicate and connect and share experiences is really fundamental for me. And then also just on a practical and a working level, what happens when you write about things that are going on in the world? The potential for impact is so extraordinary from storytelling in the written word. And that's certainly been true in my life. 
Yeah, I, I see it all the time. You, you cover something, you know, you tell somebody's story, you don't think, it, you know, I'm just doing my job, I'm just telling a story. It turns out that it has a big impact on people's lives. Absolutely. And, and you can change things, actually, Absolutely. which is pretty amazing. Now, uh, you know, the, the organization you mentioned in Africa that you, you founded, was that Advancing Girls Education in Africa? Yeah, that's right. Okay, can you tell me about that? What was that about? Sure. So this goes back to telling a story. So like I was beginning to tell you, Michael, so when I was in Africa, I was actually an intern. So I was in the middle of grad school, and I was working with CARE Malawi. I went there because I wanted to get really close on the ground and get to know people, and I was doing a report for them. So I was out talking to people every day. I got a call from the Christian Science Monitor. They needed a feature on Africa. It was a big day. It was a big global policy day, and they didn't have someone out in the field to write the story. So they came to me. So I was paired with a phenomenal editor, and I wrote a story that was very, very detailed about a family I knew who was living on a dollar a day and all the money that came in, all the money that went out, and that was a way of explaining their priorities as well. Their daughter, Anessi, didn't go to school. She dropped out of eighth grade while their son, Silfred, was in 11th grade. So I told this story, and, and Nessie and, and her face are burned in my mind because of the importance they've had in my life and the lives of many other people. She, she was a beautiful girl, moon-shaped face, deep dimples, and so shy that she really couldn't even talk to me. So I gathered everything from her mother. When the readers got the story, it opened up a vein, and I got the next morning at least 20 letters to the editor, detailed self-examining letters about, you know, I just went shopping yesterday and spent hundreds of dollars. I could have sent an essay to school with this, and I feel like I've got to do something to help this girl that I read about. So with that money, I went back to the village with Malawian friends and found a way to set up a little bit of management and then identified all the girls in the village who hadn't made it to eighth grade. None had made it beyond that. So that was a way to say, okay, this group of girls is the most ready to go on to the next year and the most needing of help. So we did that. And over the course of the year, I continued to report on Anessi and on the girls. And it's kind of unusual. The readers kept sending money with each update. And so the Christian Science Monitor and I worked together to figure out how to manage this, both respecting the readers' instincts and desires to help, um, but also maintaining the line of reporting on the story. At the end of the year, the readers had sent in $40,000, which is extraordinary in term. I mean, this isn't something you could repeat purposefully. This was really an unintended positive consequence of an Essie story. And at that point, I agreed with the Christian Science Monitor. I couldn't report on the story anymore. And so my choice would be to continue reporting for them or to go off and start this organization. So I chose working to start Age Africa because I thought nobody else was going to do that except for me. Um, so I worked on that organization for over a decade until I finally moved abroad and um, turned over. I was the chair of the organization and turned that over to a person who I really admire. Um, and it's it's still going, serving thousands of girls in Malawi, very strong with a wonderful board and team on the ground. And so that idea that journalism can have impact is incredibly personal to me. So tell me about about running a, a nonprofit. Yeah. That's, that's something that a lot of people do. You know, I know with my own experience, you know, coming across situations like this where you cover a story and, you know, there are people who want to want to help somehow. And there seem to be opportunities 
if you're journalists, but or maybe even just other people just wanting to 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 start a nonprofit to help. You know, what was what was that experience like for you? It was exhilarating. Looking back at the village, the day that we went and the girls were given scholarships and they were allowed to sit in their church and stand up and say their names for the first time. Driving away from the village and looking back at the church was the most memorable moment of my life. The chance to actually take your skills and the opportunities that you've had and put them to use is so empowering. It's so it's so exciting. And I think the success of nonprofits really depends upon channeling that feeling to the people around you. Over the next chapters of H Africa, I felt that my contribution was to see opportunities and to respond to them fully for the purpose of that mission. And so that's what I tried to do again and again. So now, you know, you're a co-founder, uh, executive director of another nonprofit, uh, the Fuller, Fuller Project. What made you decide to do this? That's the question I want to ask. It's hard to answer that concisely because there are so many things we that got, we got time together. To, we, we got, got time, time to go. Well, I'll try to bring out the most important ones. Spending that time working with the girls in Malawi, I was learning as we went. And this was before girls' education was a household idea, before Malala really revolutionized the idea. And so I was educated in the field of international development, but I wasn't an expert in girls' education yet. So each time I would see something, I was truly shocked by it, the way that even a family where the woman was the financial head of household would deprioritize the girl for so many reasons. The abuse that the girls suffered, which I'd heard about and I'd read about, but when you sit in a circle of girls and they're talking about abuse with the same feeling of regularity as if they were just talking about what uniform they would pick, which teachers had abused them, it's just so commonplace. It's stunning. How can they possibly succeed at school when teachers are predatory? It's so so ingrained in their daily life that it's not for them. It's not an unusual thing. Exactly. Exactly. I saw it on a lot of levels. I worked with a lot of women grassroots leaders. So a, a few years later on, I worked at Brookings. And one of the things I did was run a fellowship program for women at the highest levels in girls' education. They would come here for six months. So we'd work together and help with their writing and getting their work out, making connections. And in one of those terms, I worked with three African women leaders who were so incredible. You can imagine the type of people who were selected for this program. I mean, these women were truly heroines. I held them in the highest regard. It seemed like there was absolutely nothing they couldn't do. And they were in leadership in their organizations. And I remember each of them telling me that in their very own institutions, which are dedicated to girls' education and empowerment, they would face huge obstacles from men in leadership, men on their boards, et cetera, who would try to undermine them as female leaders. They would face the same with their own governments. So they were constantly having to negotiate and make accommodations because they live in these patriarchal structures. Which to me is just that these women, these incredibly powerful women would face that sort of thing. And not only that, but that they were doing such incredible things and making gains that affect all of us on a global level, yet there wouldn't be press there to capture those stories and report on them. So that was something that really got deep into my consciousness about any kind of movement for girls or for women's rights and how 
how much further it would go if it was seen as a news story and if women in those leadership roles were really fully respected for the power that they yield. So all of those things were in my mind when I went to Istanbul in 2014. And there I was working in, as a freelance journalist reporting on the Turkish Turkish women, um, reporting on Syrian women, reporting on education. And there I met Christina Asquith, who's my co-founder at The Fuller Project. So Christina, before I met her, I read her book, which was, you know, there are sometimes books which are, are transformational for the reader. Her book about the women activists in, in Iraq, which is a beautifully written work of non, narrative nonfiction. But it also tells the story of how during the U.S. invasion where she was there reporting, I think we all remember that women's rights was one of the reasons that was used to support the intervention. Same in Afghanistan. And yet there were women activists who she reported on who didn't agree with the, with the invasion, knew that it would jeopardize their physical insecurity, and weren't supported by the efforts that went for women's rights purportedly, which were often top-down efforts. And so instead of finding the legit women's grassroots organizations and supporting and funding them and listening to their priorities, there were other efforts, like let's bump up the quota overnight for the number of women in parliament. And you can imagine what happens when you open up a gap like that and there's a power vacuum, the powerful conservative fundamentalist elements just put their wives in, done. So those sorts of things. It was a poignant moment to read about that and to hear her experiences of trying to report on women in Iraq and getting rebuked and even ridiculed for going to a war zone to report on women. You know, the idea that women's experience is central to war hadn't taken hold and I think really still needs to take hold more so. So when we met in Istanbul and we talked about these things, it was the 10-year anniversary of some of what the U.S. would like to say were the high watermarks of the war in Iraq. So taking Fallujah. And then 10 years later, exact same spot, ISIS is marching on Fallujah. We looked at the region. The region is one where women have really borne the brunt of foreign policy, which really excludes them. I mean, even in the U.S., women don't have the voice that they deserve in elected office. So we're still hovering around 20 percent representation in the U.S. And I think the recognition that that's a problem is rising when we're talking about Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and these wars that have come from that decision, now women are really very much excluded. And that's incredibly clear. It's amazing because we actually um, I interviewed uh, Lisa Curry, a journalist who went to Lebanon over the last year and uh, wrote a story for The Times of Israel about suicide rates among Syrian teenage girls mm -hmm. and just her experience of going out and realizing that you know, nobody was reporting or talking about these stories. Right. And it was it was just her being there looking for a story to write and then realizing, well, these young boys are having to work in stores because their family can't afford to live. Otherwise, where are the girls? What, what's what's happening to the girls? And then she was able to just discover this really powerful story. So we still haven't gotten to uh, the Fuller Project. So I, I guess we got your thinking. Yeah that there was a need and you yeah. saw that there was a need and, and it was a, a journalism solution, a storytelling solution that you, you put forward. Right. So Christina had been brewing this idea for the Fuller Project since her time in Iraq. So we met and we began to report together to get to know each other's work 
to do stories together. And from the beginning, like a strike of lightning, I could see that the reporting was filling a really important hole. And editors were also asking for the work. So, for instance, some of the stories that we were doing early on, I reported a story for Foreign Affairs, which was about the Turkish mothers who were organizing to try to stop the government from converting their local schools to institutions that propagate Sunni Islam. So I was following families. I followed a woman named Gulkan who returned from Ramadan, which is at the end of the summer, to register the children for school. And when she arrived, she found out the school had been converted basically overnight, which meant that instead of getting a regular number of hours for wide-spanning secular education, 13 of those hours would be taken over with Sunni education, so reading the Quran and and studying the Prophet, which was – Turkey is actually a secular country despite the majority of people having a Muslim faith. And it has a very rich secular tradition. So she was outraged because she wants her children to have the right number of hours for science and math and everything else that she thinks they need in order to be successful. So I followed those families as they organized, and I I went with them when they would speak to officials and saw the disdain with which they were treated in the context of this country where a very patriarchal leader is increasingly grabbing power and and his base is this very conservative Muslim base, and he's looking to – increases power by providing expanded space for that group. One of the stories that Christina wrote was on Özgecan Aslan, who was a, a Turkish college student who was brutally raped and murdered. And she covered that for the New York Times in the context of a, a women-led movement to stop femicide in Turkey. And I do think that reporting those stories, especially in the New York Times, which President Erdogan of Turkey definitely reads – provides a measure of protection for these women who are true and they are true soldiers for this cause. I mean they're they're not privileged the way we are in this country to get to work on a nonprofit cause as a profession. They're doctors or lawyers or teachers and they come into a little scrap of an apartment that they found to be able to work out of late at night and then they're trying to organize throughout the country and they have been successful. So that was very motivating for me to see that there is this void And when we report on these stories and we do it well and we show editors that this news will be well read by their audiences, we can make a difference. We can bring to light these injustices and we can shine a light on women who really deserve it. Are the editors that you're taking it to primarily in in Western newspapers or news outlets? So I would say the majority, yes. That's really where we've started and have had a lot of interest from those editors. So we do a lot of work with the prestige media outlets from New York Times to Washington Post, CNN, The Atlantic, et cetera. Um, We've also had a lot of interest from magazines, whether Glamour, Elle, Mary Claire, et cetera. But increasingly, and as we grow and as we build our team and our reach, what we do is we'll often publish with an outlet of that nature and then cross-publish with a local outlet with the idea that there are different audiences that we want to reach with the reporting. Okay. And your reasons why you originally went to the uh, Western media? Probably two. One being the contacts that we had, and two being the reach and the influence of those outlets. So sitting in Turkey, for example, we did publish with Turkish outlets as well, like Hurriyet, but the international, the U.S. outlets have a huge amount of influence. And so if you publish with Hurriyet, you're reaching a Turkish audience. If you publish with the New York Times, 
you're still reaching that Turkish audience, but you're also reaching an American and global audience. Okay. And those editors have been receptive to this type of this type of reporting. They have been receptive, yes. And increasingly, as they get to know us, as they get to know our team, as we build the relationships, as the articles are well-read, they've been more and more wanting of the work that we've been providing. I think at first, you know, there is a need for international news coverage and reporting on women is a different angle. So these are often different stories than editors may be pitched. So there is that window of opportunity for us. Now, a few years later, we're in a very different moment where having stories on women is becoming more and more critical. And so I think editors are are more awake to the importance of publishing some of these stories as well. So are they really concerned about like a news hook? I mean, does a story have to somehow relate to something that's going on in the country at the moment in order for the editors to be more interested in it? Or is it just a general understanding that this is an important story from a region about people who are maybe underreported. Let's include that. It really depends on the editor, as you can imagine. I think <laughs> is it a man editor, editor? No. Well, <laughs> um, I won't say that because the question yeah. of whether or not there's a news hook is its own question, right. right? That's a separate question as to whether or not you consider a story about girls in Syria a news story. So. Well, if there was, you know, if there was a, some change in the, the Syrian war and, and there right. were all these other stories and, oh, hey, and there's this other aspect of there's it. This, right. I do think it depends on the editor. I think being an editor is an incredible job because in many cases you really do get to you do get to have your interests guide in some ways. So we have had some editors say to us, look, this has to connect to what's going on with the administration in the U.S. one way or the other, because that is where we're focused right now. That's very discouraging for us and for our foreign correspondents, obviously. And that I think that is really concerning for us in general, that there is a myopia around President Trump, in, including because he's able to manipulate the news cycle with such ease. On the other hand, we've had plenty of editors say we recognize that this is such an all-consuming force right now in journalism and we are not going to go in that direction. So we definitely do still want your deep investigative and feature-based writing. So we get both. We tend to do less kind of breaking or responding to breaking news because of the nature of the way that we work. We do oftentimes stories that take a longer time. But sometimes those stories will come back into the news cycle and we'll be able to connect it up in a way that shows the relevance of the story to what's going on. So we try to manage these different currents and make sure that the reader sees the relevance of the story in as many different dimensions as possible. So are any of the ed- editors, have they, they spoken to you, there con- any concern about the, you know, well, this wouldn't necessarily be interesting to our, our audience? Has anybody expressed something like that? Usually we get a bit further in the conversation okay. where, so, so the way that we work with outlets is varied. We work in a lot of different ways, but fundamentally we like to know what editors are thinking and what they, the way that they work, the way that their audience engages the style that's effective for their outlet. And so before we get to a place where they're saying, no, that story just doesn't work, we we have already built some fabric in our discussion. So we know what stories to bring to them. Okay. And and what type of stories are you are you bringing and, and what ones have you seen have been successful? So what we do global and domestic coverage are starting out in 2015 really came from a base of international coverage. So We started with a lot of international coverage and we're shifting the balance towards about 50-50. 
But in the international domain, one of the stories that we continue to report on is investigated by Corinne Redford, who's one of our contributors. And it is a story about Bangladesh and child trafficking that is occurring at a really alarming rate without regulation there. And she tells a story in L, British L, which is one of our partners, about a girl named Moina who was married by her parents without her consent at 11. She was pregnant at 12. She had to have a C-section because her body was too small to deliver the baby naturally. Then shortly after, her husband took her to a train station to an area of bedding underground and said, I'll be back in the morning. And in the morning, she was told by a woman there that she'd been sold for about 2,500 euro. So she, from there, was taken to a brothel. There are different types of brothels in Bangladesh, but one of the more kind of formal regulated brothels. Brothels are legal in Bangladesh, and this provides cover for this kind of thing to happen. So she spent some years there until she ran away to a less regulated brothel where she thought maybe she would have a slightly better life. And so Corinne and Allison Joyce, the photographer who, who she partners with, went together to that brothel where they found Moina. And they did a photo series, an investigation there. Um, they photographed the Johns outside scrapping and fighting. They photographed Moina's room. And the power of the photographs is that you see that Moina is still a child. And although she's been there for years, her room is draped in pink. There's a teddy bear in the room. And she takes 9 to 11 clients a day. She's essentially raped about 10 times a day, every day. So the thing about these stories is that I think all of us know that there are horrible things happening to girls and boys and, and people all around the world at all times. And we feel saturated with some of that information. But our reporters are in the room with the girls. And when you see the story, you feel that you're there as well. And that emotional power is really conveyed the readers of that article are the readers of Elle magazine. 700,000 people read that article, staying on the page for an average of 20 minutes. So in that, especially in a, a magazine with varied content, some of it very light, lifestyle content, we consider that to be very successful because it has really brought that information home for those readers. The next piece that Karim published for Elle was How to Help, so providing more information about the groups that are trying to transition the girls out of there thoughtfully, not just break them out, but actually bring them into opportunities. This is really an extensive issue, and Corinne is dedicated to continuing to report. Um, she wants to get she she wants to get the numbers of how many girls are in this situation in the country, which is a, a big piece of of data journalism that hasn't been done yet. Then from there, we will continue to report and look at who's responsible for this, and that's the accountability piece. So. Of course, the Bangladeshi government, um, but also there are international bodies who, are, who take on responsibility related to children's welfare and anti-slavery. So that's one piece that we'll continue and hope that our, our readers will continue to follow as well. It's been really important. So I like the idea that not only you're, I mean, there's a certain power to going and covering the story and putting the reader in a place and exposing them to something that they may not be aware of. And that, you know, as you as you proved in in your experience with the Christ, Christian Science Monitor, you know, the readers were motivated to help. So 
the fact that your second secondary story is one of giving people the tools so here's how you can help that is that is part of what your your mission is right well we do care about what happens to women right i mean a topic of much discussion for us is our mission to report and investigate and do really compelling stories or are we also so bold as to say that we care about the outcome for women? And I think where we land is that we do care that the injustices that women face are addressed. And really our work is to do these investigations, but also with an eye towards these investigations spurring accountability. So if that means making sure that our reports are read, then we definitely want to go that extra mile to make sure that people of influence read our reports. Okay. <laughs> now, the other part of your mission is it's not just um, reporting stories about women, but actually getting women in the decision-making process in, in newsrooms. How are you doing that? How are you sort of promoting that? Well, the women that we train is one way that we do promote that. So we work with a fair number of women each year. And this year, we opened up a call for proposals where we heard from about 100, mostly women, some men did submit proposals and we have worked with some men. But it does tend to be women who want to work with us because they're the ones who will tell us, I have been trying to report on women and I haven't been as successful as I'd like to. So I see this as an opportunity to develop my portfolio and my expertise in that area. Um, from that call of 100, we worked with 20 women this year in particular in a class, basically, where we convened that group together we offered trainings to that group, and everyone in that group was on assignment. That training both supports the development of the reporters' careers because we're bringing access to different publications. We're bringing editorial support. We're bringing expertise and a research base, connecting, for instance, with Shorenstein Center at Harvard and bringing, um, bringing consolidated research that they can draw from. And it also helps them to build this repertoire of um, reporting on this issue. So – that I think that does support the development of women who very often are global freelancers who, as you know, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, the, the, the lack of financial opportunities, um, moving from project to project. Um, these are very talented and very entrepreneurial individuals. So providing good opportunities there I think helps. And then as they are working with different outlets or maybe hired by different outlets, they can bring all of that there. So that's one level. The other thing that we do is work directly with editors. So, for example, we have two convenings coming up, one in New York and one in Washington. These are co-hosted with Pieces Loud, which is the advocacy arm of Fork Films, founded by Abigail Disney, where she does these documentaries about women's involvement in peace and security. We've been reporting on that issue for a long time as well. So we partnered up, and the first one in New York, Abigail Disney, will host in her home where about 25 of the editors of our finest outlets in this country are invited to hear about the issue of women being involved in security institutions and invited to the peace table and how and why this is a news story. So by working at that level and bringing you know, fantastic documentaries and really rigorous research to editors, I think we can open up some more thinking about this issue as well. Yeah, I, I think that's something that needs to be done. Xanthi, this has been an incredible conversation. You know, I encourage people to to seek out your work, find out more about your organization, which I assume they'd be able to do, find that online. Fullerproject.org. Okay, excellent. Well, actually, before I wrap up, let me ask you one question. What sure. would you say to 
a young journalist, a young female journalist who who is struggling to get to be heard in, in her newsroom, uh, who maybe wants to do this type of reporting. What what would you say to her? Thank you. That's a great question. I think there's a lot of research out there that it's good for us to be armed with about diversity in the newsroom, about the diversity of news stories as well, and about the way in which these stories are critical for our readership. So being armed with those statistics and that research, really having done that homework so that we can make the case to editors about why women's voices need to be heard in the newsroom and on the page is really important. I also think that it's important to recognize that we are in an incredible moment right now. The impact of the media when telling women's stories could not be more clear. And I think for women to recognize that and to really to use that point, I think it's it's really important. I'm not sure everybody gets that quite yet. And and so I think it's a really important moment for women journalists to feel empowered by that and to realize that if you're editor hasn't gotten that yet and hasn't gotten the importance of women's voices being fully included, you're doing a service to your news organization by speaking up on that point. Great point. Again, Santhi, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism, Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy provided our web content. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter helped with the website. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Would you like to find out more about our podcast? Go to itsalljournalism.com and sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You'll receive weekly updates about upcoming episodes and special events that we've got in the works. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks again for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.